Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery and we will be joined by authors, artists and in some cases the subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. You can see Pauline Boaty's self-portrait on display in Room 31 at the National Portrait Gallery. A striking work of stained glass, it is an early piece in what would be a short career. Though she died at the age of just 28, in her brief, vibrant life, she made a fabulously varied contribution to the world of British pop art and culture. After decades in the shadows, Boaty has recently been rightfully placed among the masters of the movement, from Peter Blake to Richard Hamilton. I meet the writer Ali Smith in front of Boaty's portrait, where we are joined by the curator Lucy Dalson. Smith's book Autumn helped ignite a new appreciation and love for Boaty's work, its intelligence, mischief, feminist stance, and its distillation of the energy of 1960s London. Lucy, could you tell me a little bit about when you acquired this portrait and what it means to you and the gallery? So, yeah, this is an incredibly exciting, really important work for us. Um, It's my favourite work in the National Portrait Gallery. We acquired it in 2017, and it was kind of this rare gift that none of us in the curatorial team could quite believe that this was being offered to us. Because I think it's right that only three... um, museum collections in the UK own work by Pauline Boti and this is an early self-portrait in stained glass we don't have any stained glass portraits in the collection so it's incredibly unique for us and it just really glows, it's kind of the heart of the 20th century galleries um, here and Pauline Boti of course was um, a key figure, one of the founders of the British pop art movement and the only woman in the movement but she's been completely forgotten and sidelined until a few years ago and you know she's been brought back to the fore by by, um, exhibitions and by Ali's book, of course. So it is a really, really a moment of a kind of revival of looking at her. And I think the fact that it's in stained glass. So Pauline um, studied at the Royal College of Art and she studied in the School of Stained Glass and she was advised not to apply to the School of Painting because she was a woman and um, it was unlikely that she would have got in and I've just learned that there are no women's toilets there There were no women's there are now, good, could we clarify that in the the architectural blueprint for the Royal College there were no women's toilets because why would you need them, because there weren't going to be any women in the Royal College of Art dot 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 so just completely kind of mind boggling and fascinating but um but what I love most about this portrait, maybe, is how she has obviously you know, she had to study stained glass when she wanted to be in the painting school, and I think they were in, they were separate buildings, so she was really kept apart from you know Peter Blake and all of the people who are having their moment in the limelight. But she's used stained glass in such an experimental, powerful, expressive way in this portrait. You know, this kind of really expressive use of the leading going across her face and the colours and this kind of abstracted painting on top. It's just really fantastic. And that was the the kind of her use of stained glass is characteristic of um, the teaching methods at the college at that time. But I think it really sets the scene for what she goes on to create later in her work. 
course, she'll, she'll have known about stained glass in, in all sorts of ways because she first went to Wimbledon College of Art where she was taught specifically in stained glass by a man who said, stained glass doesn't have to be about churches. It can be about anything. It can be about swimming pools. It can be about... Dot, dot, dot. And so she was already liberated, as it were, as soon as she came into art school at a very young age to think you could do anything with it. But she also saw it every day in the lighting at the top of the front door in their own you know, semi-detached house. So she knew to take the suburban and the notions of saintliness and, mm. and holiness and, and to create something which is... Uh, well, it's unlike anything else in this gallery, for a start. No. It's, you know, okay, perhaps, you could, um, perhaps you could describe okay. exactly how it looks for us. So we have got, I mean, me too, it's one of my, it is my favourite work in this whole portrait gallery, isn't that amazing, the impact of this? And then by looking at it, you kind of get a sense of the impact of Boti at the time when she was creating. She must have been just, I mean, she was, we know she was, just from what we know about her blowing all those walls down where women weren't supposed to be or women weren't meant to be. She just was a deconstructor for a reconstructor. She just opened everything. You look at this, it's... A stained glass portrait of a woman. It looks kind of pre-Raphaelite. It also looks kind of medieval. It also looks like Picasso. It looks utterly modern and utterly traditional both at once. How on earth does she do that? I don't know. Anyway, rising up through the middle of the woman's body, at the top there's her head head with with gorgeous gold hair and looking at it as like a saint, holding her hand up like a saint does in a picture of an icon. With, you know, the fingers showing something very small, holding a space for something just a moment, just very small to make you think. They come down the body and the body is full of plants and flowers. It's got a, a beautiful red with flashes of blue dress in it and a necklace with reds and blues and yellows. And then it's full of sunflowers or some kind of amazing plant growth, as if life is just forcing its way up through this woman, this body, into fluorescence at her heart and her chest. Then you look up at her mouth and you see that there's a piece of leading, as you were saying, Lucy, right across her mouth. And you know that what Boti is saying is, look at the life in this, in art, in the self-portrait, in the notion of a woman. Look at the things that you can do with a portrait, and look what I have to do with my own mouth. And at the same time, she denies it by being so full of life all the way through the, the portrait. It is a brilliant picture of a woman as the 50s come into the 60s, knowing her power and knowing the constraints on her power, both at once. And oh my God, it is like you say, it's full of, it's, it's utterly joyous. And completely serious at the same time. It is funny, you look at it at first and you do think it looks medieval, and then you realise she's basically done a sort of Mary Quant bob in, in stained glass, hasn't she? It's quite extraordinary. And those beads look to me very of the era, sort of late 50s, early 60s. Yes. And up the side, the legend holds flowers and plants and flowers and, and abstract designs and, and plants and flowers and it's an early work for her and I first saw it when it came into the gallery and I it was a, a novice to Boti but I'd done a bit of work for, for the book I was uh, working on and I had thought I had seen all the versions of Boti and the amazing thing about this being here in this gallery now is that the other versions of Boti you have here are portraits yeah. by male photographers who take her, and she knew how to use her image, Boti. She, she always stood in front of her own artwork because she knew that she was really beautiful and she knew to use her beauty and she knew to 
place herself in front of her work so that if they were going to put this in a paper or if this picture was going to turn up again, her work would be there. She would actually specifically say, can you get my paintbrushes into the picture? She wanted to be known as the artist who made these works. So if you're going to look at her, look at the work too. Of course, the papers, when they were in, because she, she ended up in a lot of tabloids being very beautiful, and of course, editors would just cut round the body and just have a picture of a beautiful girl and talk about the, you know, the beautiful blonde artist. And she worked against that with everything she had, I think, and used it, and knew how to use it in a, in a proto-feminist way, knew how to use her own body and art. Yeah. May I say that as well, one of my favourite things about this is an incredibly beautiful face, but she's got one eyebrow raised, hasn't she? Which I, I, what do you think she's saying with that? You saying, well, she's holding up her hand, so it's as if she's saying it's very small. <laughs> It's actually what she's saying. It's very small. So there's there's a there's a sense in which everything about this picture is a kind of Mickey take, and at the same time, completely kind of life serious. And she was a very mischievous person, and she did like to push the boundaries. I mean, for a woman at the beginning of the '60s, she was out there in a way that almost nobody could be or was. I mean, she was on Ready Steady Go as a dancer. She was she became an actress in um, on uh, at the Royal Court and also in lots of TV dramas. She was a commentator on things like class, money, and gender uh, on the radio uh, in, in a way that you know you, no other female voices were saying or were able to say the things that Boti was was saying. When when she was doing her pieces for the radio, and she she, um, she was that much of a pioneer. You feel this sort of energy kind of lit behind her and forcing forward in her, so that her loss, and then her us refinding her, is all the more precious. And all you know, the, the loss itself is devastating when you realise, when you look at the work and you think this life force. Thank God we didn't lose it. What's um, also so devastating, of course, is this being such an early mm. self-portrait with all of that ahead of her to come and yet knowing about her tragically early death from cancer when she was 20, 28 mm. you just think what could have been if she wasn't held back as a woman and her work been hidden and what could have been if she had gone on to kind of have the length of career of say Peter Blake or the likes so I think it's an incredibly moving portrait in that way and yeah, I think, Ali, what you're saying about it at once being really quite funny, but completely serious at the same time, and that mixture of kind of modern and, and traditional, and using this medium in such a kind of subversive way, it's just so wonderful. Yeah. Lucy, you have grand plans for how to display this in the future, don't you? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I'll be allowed, but I think um, we've obviously got it here in the gallery on a light box, but um, it would be wonderful one day to be able to see it within a wall, suspended, so that you can look at the work from both sides. You know, that's how stained glass is supposed to be seen, and then the light would change throughout the day. I I have grand plans for where this could be seen, in my bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) But no, um, it's just so, so fantastic. It's very surprising. I mean, portraiture in stained glass is a big thing of course and for this to be the only stained glass portrait was a real surprise to me when we acquired it and the fact that it's Pauline Boaty is just so fantastic. How do you think she speaks to her neighbours here? She's beneath Sir Thomas Beecham and who's she next to? Michael Ayrton? I, I have this theory that she's looking straight across at Barbara Hepworth oh, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a self-portrait of Hepworth just on the other side of the gallery creating herself as it were almost you know, kind of drawing herself and there's something about these two artists 
all, you know, on opposite sides, knowing that there's one half of the century and then there's the next half of the century, and Booty really heralds that latter half, that yeah. post-war half of the century. That's yeah. wonderful. Her life ended so early, and she was such a force of life. And there is the sadness at the back of the story of Booty until you see a picture, and then the picture just dispels the sadness. That's what's amazing to me about her art, is that we live tragic lives. We all go late or early, and the earlier we go, it's the worst. It's awful, it's terrible that this extraordinarily talented person went so soon and so hard and so fast. And then you look at her work and your head fills with colour, particularly if you look at the way she uses greens and reds, because her, her, her use of these two colours blanks the mind into brightness. I mean, when you see her very famous, the only blonde in the world, her very, one of her famous pictures of Marilyn, you look away from it, your eyes are filled with white light. She gives you back the life force in everything of hers that, that you experience. And this particular portrait, here she is. Imagine, a self-portrait of Boti in the National Portrait Gallery. Thank God. <laughs> Before we leave, Lucy, um, we've talked about the relationship across the gallery between, <laughs> between Pauline Boaty and Barbara Hepworth. There's another special relationship going on in this room, isn't there? <laughs> Could you tell us about that one? My husband will murder me after <laughs> I have said this. So um, it's not that I think that I look like her, but I, I like to think of myself when I wake up in the morning sometimes of, um, as resembling Girl in Bed by um, Lucian Freud, Lady Caroline Blackwood. And I, I had a bit of fun when we were doing the rehang for this room um, because I've always thought that my husband Jack looks rather like John Minton in his self-portrait, so I thought I'd hang John Minton side by side with Girl in Bed um, by Lucian Freud just so that me and Jack are captured together in the gallery forever so everyone can see we are now going to retreat into the belly of the of the gallery because i think there's going to be a lunchtime rush and you lucy have to prepare for an exhibition this evening is that correct yeah so we have a new exhibition of the contemporary artist elizabeth payton um it's very exciting it's um it's the first time that we've sort of invited a contemporary artist to show her work with the permanent collection so it's been fantastic thank you I want to show behind the scenes at Madame Swords. Richard Branson's head in a sink. <laughs> We're now backstage at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, Ali, could you tell us about when you first became aware of Pauline Boaty and her work? I was working on a book called Autumn. And I had thought it would probably be kind of Keatsian because that's what autumn is. It's the season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. It's the season of things which are short-lived but give off a great deal of life and colour, like Keats and like Keats's poetry. So I was thinking it might be something to do with something like that. And then I was flicking a magazine one day and I saw a picture. The picture I saw was called Colour Her Gone. Um, it, was a it was a tiny reproduction of this picture. Um, it caught my eye partly because the picture was amazing. It was a picture of Marilyn, except Marilyn surrounded by an abstract image or an abstract design which then sort of came round Marilyn as if wallpaper was coming off the wall, embracing her and becoming her. So it was between abstract and figurative. And it was called Colour Her Gone, and I really love the Candor and Ebb song. Um, my colouring book uh, I knew it in Dusty Springfield's version where it's all about colour him gone and I, I saw it, it caught my eye the gender change I thought what date's that picture oh early 60s uh, 
Well, imagine a, a woman thinking to, to change the gender at that point. That's really exciting. Who is this woman, Pauline Booty? What? Well, she's a pop artist, a female pop artist, a British female pop artist I've never heard of, never seen any of her pictures. Why not? And then I looked her up. And then I was like, why do all these pictures end in the mid-60s? And then I discovered her story, which was that she died very young. And from that point on, I knew I had met, as it were, the force of something Keatsian in the modern, in the form of an artist who really changed things, just like Keats did for the lyric poem, really changed our understandings of images, our understandings of colour, and our understandings of women in the world at a time when this was properly pioneering. There was nobody like this then. And it's quite a remarkable story because her art had been largely hidden away in a shed, I think, is that right, for a long time? Yes, I, I found out that there were all these images online and they all stopped as essay in 1966. And I discovered that these images that I was looking at myself, reproduction on, on a screen, had also been lost for a long time because basically, I presume, after she died, it was too sad and, and her family just folded the images back into the family and they lost currency and then presumably they also lost a kind of currency because she was a woman and the thing about women's work whether it's art or writing or whatever it is it tends to fall off the back of the cannon you know it's as if the cannon's you know an old juggernaut juggling along a road and off the back falls whatever's closest to the edge and so something about Boaty's work had, and something about Boaty's life both I have a feeling had meant that it simply was folded I mean there was there's a picture of hers called It's a Man's World 2 and this was shown in the last year of her life at a, a pop art exhibition, and it was blanked by the critics. It is an extraordinary work. It is a picture of pornographic images of women, which she has repainted onto a canvas, surrounding just a female torso. And the female torso has no head, no, no limbs, it's just a torso, and it is beautiful and clean and pure. Round it are all these flashy... Uh, repainted images of what women are meant to look like and there was this picture at the centre of it of the female nude torso and this image in mid-60s, 1966 it was untakeable and there's something about her work which perhaps we've had to catch up on in a way that you know she really was ahead of her time it's possible, that's one of the reasons that her work may have, as it were, dropped away from the light however, thank God it hasn't because when we see her work when we see what there, there is of her work because there will be more things lost and then refound, like the portrait upstairs in the National Portrait Gallery which is a joy to see so most of her work was tucked away in her brother's farm's barn and um, some were found in a lock-up, weren't they, in West, West London, West London. Think, yeah. so there, who knows, with any luck we will continue to add to the body of work. And there are all sorts of works we know because they're on photograph, but they've disappeared. So they may turn up. Other things we don't know about may turn up. That in itself proves the life of art. She was a, an extraordinary figure because she had many lives in a way, didn't she? she? She appeared on television. She was a cultural critic. Could you tell us about what that gave her work? What I think is you look at Boti and you see someone who was active on all fronts. I mean, she was the female centre of the pop art movement. She is the person who is articulating analytically what it means to be a woman at the, this point in this decade, at this point in art, properly, intellectually, articulately, analytically. And then she made uh, Pop Goes the Easel with Ken Russell and Peter Blake and a couple of other uh, the artists from the Royal College. And she was the woman on Pop Goes the Easel and she is extraordinarily stunning as a woman. She She's beautiful. She's a beautiful 
uh, person. Um, she knew her own beauty. However, her segment on that particular film is a mad, surreal dream of what it feels like to be chased by the past and to try and escape the past and to wake up out of it into being a woman at art college. Uh, and she, she, she scripted it herself. Russell didn't work on it. He, let, he did everything she asked when she scripted it. From which this vision of extraordinary energy and beauty, suddenly she was getting her acting work. But she was also getting radio work. So she was a commentator on radio. She was in several plays at the Royal Court. She does a cameo in Alfie, the film Alfie, which is where most people will have seen her without realising they've seen her. She's on for less than a minute. Michael Caine, who walks past a dry cleaner and he's he's talking about how um, his life's pretty good because he's got this little woman in a dry cleaner he goes to see and he pops in and she, she waves him out of the window and he pops in they go behind the clothes he comes out again and says and I was getting my suit cleaned into the bargain and you see Boti for a moment in the last year of her life actually bright and funny and mischievous and full of life and basically what you see is the breakthrough of women into places where women hadn't been or, or could not hold a multiple life, as it were. She's also a dancer at Ready, Steady, Go. If you wanted to epitomise the 60s, you look at the very end of Pop Goes the Easel when Boaty is dancing at a party with David Hockney with a feather bow around her neck. She looks straight at the camera and she gives it a smile and a wink because she is it. She is now. She is, the, she is what is happening now, the possibility of that dance. How do you think her work sits next to her contemporaries? The thing which excites me about her work next to her contemporaries' work is exactly the female eye. The key, as it were, in pop art is the way in which it looks at images which are now proliferate. It takes images which would have been seen a million, million times and then redresses them, looks at them again from a new perspective, from a perspective of art, from a perspective of something absolutely unique or individual. Boti did that all the time. She was very, very keen. I think keener than her fellow artists to bring the present day, the absolute contemporary image, into the work in a form of analysis. In other words, it made you think because you saw it again differently. She understood what to do with that in a properly pioneering way, I think. So her images are of the Beatles, uh, Fellini, Kennedy, missile silos, civil rights war that's already beginning to happen in the United States. She was completely aware of what the image meant, what it did to everybody and what you can do with it, which is the thing which makes her really, really special. Can we talk about one of your, what I think is one of your favourites, and it's certainly one of mine, which is Bum. Was that, was that her last work? Yeah, Bum is, a, is her last painting. Even though when she was dying, she carried on sketching till her last days. She did not stop. But Bum is her last painted work, and she painted it for Kenneth Tynan's O Calcutta. And I had the chance to see it in its original a couple of years ago, and it came up for sale at Christie's, and I went to watch the sale, and I saw the picture, and it is an extraordinary work. There is the stage with its proscenium arch, in the centre of which there is the most massive, most beautiful female bottom. It is just funny and rude and serious and brilliant, and you come away from it feeling rejuvenated what can I tell you except that you do because you know that the person who made this is full of love and humour and raciness and the kind of energy that says really? Well I think this actually. Even if somebody painted that now people would be sort of slightly amazed by it and I cannot even imagine the response in the 1960s to to such a, a thing. If somebody painted it now um, it would not have the affection and the 
love <laughs> and the mischief. Yes, there's a real warmth and mischief to her work, isn't there? There's a, a warmth that comes through everything that she that we now look at of, of booties, and this is one of the things about her. Which I find stunning every time. So I started thinking, oh God, this this artist died so young. This is a tragic story. I can't go near this this tragic story. But when you see the works, sadness is obliterated. Thinking happens and warmth happens and friendliness happens and something about the life force that is in colour and in the way that art works for us and why we have it happens when you look at Bodhi's work, which means that all the tragic things which happen in our lives, they, they go on the back burner in something else, something about possibility, understanding, presence happens. Do you feel an echo of those qualities in your own writing? I'm happy to have had the spirit of Bodhi at the back of, uh, well, back of all four of these books I'm writing, but particularly at the back of that first book, uh, Autumn. I mean, I think of it as the spine of the, the novel to have had that spirit anywhere near anything I was doing. Thank God for it. She understood. She understood all the difficulties of life lived as we all do politically and and personally and locally and in the world she understood the issues which we all deal with all the time and she gave them a voice at a point when the very uh, act of such a fine mind and such a fine creator giving us feedback about these things is like a kind of gift regardless of when we read it we think of her very much as part of that sort of British pop art movement but did she look further afield than that I know she was very widely read not just in British writers but French writers thinkers yeah she was the the student who would walk down the corridor and someone as she passed a man of course would whisper to another man apparently she's read Proust you know yeah she had she'd read them all she was a proper thinker she loved art she modeled her work on the the great writers of the and and you can see you can see pictures of them as well in her on her screens and you know she she would make collages and uh, she was a proper thinking intellectual who had read and read and who had seen the latest european films in the way you know she understood the new understanding of post-war morality that comes through a director like antonioni or fellini she understood about the shifts in policy in um America, and one of the things about Bhuti uh, is that she had her tap roots in all of those rich and exciting places. The great rich literature of the beginning of the century that came through to a post-war understanding, the the new forms in all the arts. So there's a great, a really great picture which she does of Jean-Paul Belmondo, the French film star. It's a kind of vision of female orgasm via Belmondo. So there's a picture of his head and he's wearing a, a straw hat and on top of that hat there is a massive opening rose. Massive, massive, many-petaled opening flower. I mean, Bhuti made it one of her so we say, ambitions to try and paint the female orgasm. And in that painting she so does, just saying. And there's a gorgeous postcard. We don't have much of Bhuti left, but there's a gorgeous postcard she sent back from Paris to a friend of hers saying, Paris is amazing. The pictures, there are no words for them. She was in the world. She understood it. So even when Pauline was rediscovered, she still wasn't quite revered in the way that she should have been, was she? Okay, so no. So there was um, uh, a critical response to the rediscovery of Pauline Bouty, which wrote her off as ever as a dolly bird. I'm quoting, I'm quoting, those are the words, dolly bird. You know, as a, as, in other words, a beautiful blonde but no artist. Oh, well, that's what she was up against. And uh, it hasn't stopped her and it won't.
it never will. I mean, she was. She was extraordinarily beautiful and she was extraordinarily talented. And she was, as it were, the model for Julie Christie's part in Darling and Billy Lyre. And she was that much of the time. The time couldn't have existed without her. That's the thing I need to say here, is that those women, those pioneers who were up against it, and, and they're still up against it, if we think about what the critic, Valdemar Januszak, said about her in, in the rediscovery and the moments of rediscovery of her work. So it's just another revelation of the fact that women are up against it. And then you look at her work, and her work's a whole other revelation. House podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St Martin's Place. Tucked behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series and earlier series, head to Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.